The next chapter with Prim Saripapat is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. It's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week's guest is former NFL and Ohio State running back and current college football analyst, Robert Smith. Robert was born and raised in Ohio. In high school, he was the first player to win Ohio's Mr. Football Award, not once, but twice. And after drawing interest from a number of football programs, including Miami, USC, and UCLA, he chose to take his talents to Ohio State, where he played football for two years and ran track for one year. He ended up leaving the Buckeyes early to pursue a professional football career. He was drafted by the Minnesota Vikings with the 21st overall pick in 1993, where he'd go on to have an eight-year NFL career and become a two-time pro bowler. He actually still holds the all-time NFL record for average yards per touchdown run, a whopping 27.2 yards per TD run. And he remains second behind Adrian Peterson on the Vikings' all-time career rush yard list with 6,818 yards and 32 TDs. Wow. There's no question his athletic achievements are impressive. But as we have seen and heard over the course of this show, that's only just one part of any athlete's story. In my interview with Robert, we talk about the role football played in lifting him out of some dark times during his troubled childhood. And we also talk about his battle with addiction and how he was able to hide his issues as a high-functioning alcoholic, including his time in the NFL. And we also discuss how the birth of his son was a turning point towards sobriety for him. Robert and I have known each other for a number of years now, and we had a little catching up to do at the beginning of our conversation. So we fast forward to Robert talking about how his childhood laid the foundation for many of his struggles, many of which involved alcohol. about the podcast format is that I'm able to sit here with somebody and talk about whatever it is and dive into their personal journey for a whole hour, sometimes two hours if we really wanted to, uninterrupted. And the pieces that have been about you, um, you know, there's there's a lot of articles, there's some pods, obviously, in different interviews, you you appeared on First Take and, and all that other stuff in 2013. Um, but you know, I feel like with articles, they are told through somebody else's words. And I'm, I, and I think that's what's exciting about the podcast format, because I want to hear everything about your story and your childhood and everything else in your words and living, living through that. And so I'm curious with that in mind, what do you think is one part of your story or your journey that people don't ask you enough about, or they forget to ask that's been really important? Um, I think you know, the way the way that I grew up, I think you know people assume if you if you talk a certain way uh, that uh, that you had a certain background or a certain upbringing. And I think that uh, you know my my father uh, was an addict. He was a, a drug dealer, um, you know, violent drug dealer. Um, actually, uh, was involved in uh, a, a number of shootings and actually served some time in jail for killing people. 
And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was, it was really chaotic, uh, growing up in that kind of environment. Uh, you know, I remember the, the first time I had, uh, I had an older brother who passed away in, uh, in 2017. Um, but, uh, the first time that, uh, my father was involved with the shooting, my brother and I were out, out in front, uh, playing in front of the house. And, uh, my father pulls up, uh, in the car and he gets out and, you know, he's hunched over and can see that he's bleeding and he runs into the house and uh, comes out with my mother and they just drive off. And uh, it's like, what's, what's this, what's going on? Like we had, we just had no idea. And you know, the cut, there was a cover story. My, my mother told us that my father owned a, 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 um, a game room, like a video game room. So this is, you know, early eighties. So just when these game rooms are starting to, starting to uh, develop and grow, and seemed like a good cover story. You know, we were counting money for him and, uh, you know, we, we, we had no idea. It was like, well, we're counting a lot of money, but we don't seem to have any of it ourselves. And he seemed to always be looking for it. So it was a, it, it was a bit strange. And the second time, uh, the second time we were over a, a friend's house, second time he was involved in a shooting and this time it was really bad. And, uh, as I said, uh, killed a couple of people and was, uh, in and out of jail for a number of years. So, it was a really, uh, really chaotic upbringing. My mother did the best that she could. And unfortunately, my mother passed away actually right after I left ESPN uh, mm. back in 16. So, um, but she did what she could, you know, and she, she struggled. It was, uh, it was very difficult on her and she uh, dealt with her own uh, problems with addiction. And uh, certainly the situation with my father exacerbated that. So it was a, just a very chaotic upbringing, but at the same time, you know, it was really sports that were not only an outlet, uh, but the coaches that I dealt with that were really the mentors uh, that uh, that helped push me through a lot of this. Um, whether it was coming to pick me up, uh, take me to practice, or really just starting starting to uh, lift weights, all those things. You know, I just I just had some some great coaches that uh, really. Uh, help guide me. And I always, I never really, uh, I, I never really had any problems with school. Mm. It was a, a primary focus of mine, and my mother uh, was a big part of that. Um, but uh, the the coaches uh, made sure that you know, as as things got more chaotic with recruiting, starting things like that, that they sheltered me from a lot of the uh, a, a lot of the um, attention and a lot of the uh, distractions. Uh, that that can come with that. So I, I always had really good people in my life, whether it was a coach or just other other families. Uh, and I think that people that are dealing with situations like that, um, you know, there are oftentimes there are people in the community that can help them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's important for people that uh, that see those warning signs um, that know that. Uh, families are, are going through troubles like that, that they do whatever they can uh, to help the children involved because uh, young people, you just, you just don't understand what's going on. And even mm -hmm. if you did understand, it's not like you know what to do. Uh, and sometimes you just mm -hmm. need somebody to be there, somebody to listen uh, and, uh, and, and somebody to care. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, I, I do feel that's probably the biggest um, challenge for a lot of coaches is while many are so good at mentoring and role modeling, and sometimes when you run into situations, regardless of what it is, um, you know, sometimes they don't necessarily know how to handle it. Um, and so there becomes this process and this this importance of educating coaches and also um, other people within the school system about how to really appropriately help kids, regardless of what it is, if their parents are, you know, struggling with mental health issues, crime, violence, background, any of that stuff. Um, so I know that both of your parents, and thank you for sharing that about your, your background. And I've said in so many other interviews, I, le- I, I really like diving into the past because I think our childhood shapes so much of who we become as adults or who we don't become as adults. So I know that both of your parents, you mentioned that they, they both struggled with addiction. And I'm curious, like, what, what did that look like as a child, if you could just paint the picture for, for people that aren't aware, um, of those circumstances? Well, I mean, with my father, it was much different. Um, you know, it was, whether it was smoking marijuana in the house or, uh, actually injecting drugs in the house, um, you know, that it was, and I, and, you know, as a child, you don't even know what that is. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you, I, there are times, uh, you know, where I would, walk in the bathroom and, you know, see the remnants of, uh, of, of, with drug paraphernalia and, and really not understand and just not really know what that was. And, uh, you know, I, 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 to the best of my recollection, you know, my mother would just say that uh, your father had some health issues or has some health issues and he was disabled to work before I was born. So I knew that uh, he was, uh, he was having some troubles and, uh, he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, so he never worked mm. uh, and was on disability. And, you know, the, the story from that uh, angle, I guess, made sense. Like, OK, so there's something going on and he needs to take this. But he would just become violent and angry uh, and you know, take things from the house or uh, become abusive with my mother. And those, those things are just it, it's, it's just so scarring. And it's just mm. so difficult to see. Uh, you know, when you're eight, nine years old to see something like this, it, it, there's just this uh, useless anger. Like, what am I going to do? I mean, there's nothing you can do. You can't you can't stop him. I mean, and to have him you know, later on you know, threaten us uh, physically and, uh, you know, threaten to kill us, things like that. You know, it was hmm. it was, it was very chaotic. Um, and there were a number of times that uh, he was put in rehabs. Or he was in jail, um, and you know, my mother again would do the best that she could. But then there were times when, uh, and we didn't we didn't see her. We never saw her use anything, and mm-hmm. she was a, a registered nurse, and that's a you know can be really difficult when you have a, a, a problem with uh, pills. And uh, she was uh, apparently using pills, taking pills from the hospitals, and. Um, you know, she would uh, she would have to go off to rehab. And we'd have to stay with another family sometimes uh, mm-hmm. for extended periods of time. And actually, when I got into high school, she lost her nursing license uh, because she had been taking those pills. So she was suspended, uh, lost her license for a time. But then, and, and you know, she did whatever she could. Uh, she, I remember she worked at a gas station. And you know, when you're a kid, it's like it's kind of embarrassing. Like, Oh wow, your mother's working at the gas station now, but you know what? She was doing whatever she could to yeah. try and get money to, to help us. And, uh, she ended up, 
uh, getting her license back and, and started back uh, to um, uh, become a nurse. And for a time, I, I went and lived with a, uh, a guardian. So there was a time in high school when uh, I wasn't even living at home. And mm. uh, but she but she did what she needed to do to get herself back and and, and get back to work. And I went back and uh, went back and lived with her uh, through my senior year. Wow, that must have been a lot to handle. Just a lot of you say chaos. Um, but I also feel like that word is is a light description for what it was um, because there's there's a lot of I mean somebody could describe it as even traumatic at, at some points a lot of instability um, but I'm I'm curious you've had the conversation about how genetics play a role in addiction um, mm -hmm. and it's also been proven that environment and context and life events and triggers will also push somebody over the edge so in your experience and with your dynamic, how do you think all those things have played a role, not only in your situation, but also your parents as well? Um, well, it's, it's hard to say with, with my father, again, he wasn't working. Um, and I don't really know, uh, the history of addiction in his family. Um, and I think that you, you talk about addiction, but you talk about other mental illnesses. And I think that, uh, especially for somebody that was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, some of it may have been self-medication. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I know that when his mother died uh, in around 82, uh, that was when his problem became much worse. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's when he was involved with the, the shooting where um, he ended up uh, going to jail. So I know that that at least was a, was a, a part of the issue with him. Now, uh, you know, my mother trying to deal with him, uh, but I know that there was a history in, in her family anyway. So that was a part of it. Uh, but I'm not a doctor. Uh, and yeah. uh, I, as, as much as I've uh, studied some of it, um, I can't put all of the pieces together and say, yes, this was definitively it. Um, and then when it, when it was me, you know, when I was in high school, and the other, I drank a couple of times in high school and, you know, like the second time I drank, it was just, just really bad. And, uh, you know, had a really bad experience and said, look, I know I shouldn't have been drinking anyway, looking at my mother and my father and, and what happened with them. Uh, but I thought I would try it anyway. Uh, but after that, I didn't, I didn't drink at all until I got into college. And then, um, you know, it just kind of took off. But when you're young and you can recover, and you can, you know, be out all night and, uh, and, and still get up the next day. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit easier. But they talk about alcoholism uh, and other addictions being progressive, progressive in, in, in bad sense. Uh, and as you get older, it becomes harder to recover. And I think the, uh, the craving becomes stronger, uh, yeah. especially when you're not using. Uh, and I think that... Uh, that can, that can make the problem worse. And so you go on these long stretches where you're using and it becomes harder and harder to recover and harder and harder to function normally. And that's a, that's a difficult mm -hmm. part about it. It is almost amazing that you were exposed to so much as a child and exposed to so many different substances, and yet you didn't really experiment with anything or even try alcohol until high school. And even then, it was only a couple times. Like, how were you able to stay away from all of that? 
Well, I think it was more of a fear of, you know, kind of what I saw. I didn't want to become my father. That was, you know, and that was probably, I mean, it really was, you know, in thinking about uh, the birth of my son uh, in, uh, in 2012, that I just saw myself becoming my father. Uh, and when I was in high school, uh, you know, the, all those memories were still fresh. And then, and then, you know, what, what happens, I think, to people that have a history of it and probably know that they themselves have a uh, genetic predisposition is that they think that they can uh, be smarter than their disease. And that's mm. the biggest part. I think that's the most difficult part is that you, you believe that you can, you can use and, and get away with it. Uh, and even if some early experimentation leads you to believe that, yeah, maybe you can get away with it again, it just it moves down a path where it becomes harder and harder to recover. And yeah. again, it's what you really want to be. Uh, and to be the best parent that I could be, uh, I couldn't have alcohol in my life. It was it was pretty simple. Mm -hmm. It was a, it was a, it was a, a, you know, a, a glaring reality. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So what, where did sports come into play during your childhood? At what age did it enter your life? So I was in the fifth grade. Um, so I was just about 10 uh, when I when I started to uh, when I started to run track. Track was always my first love. Um, and just uh, watching, uh, you know, and, and watching watching track in the Olympics just like always, always a goal of mine. Like I, I, in watching Carl Lewis in 1984 win four gold medals, like I wanted to break the world record in the long jump. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I really wanted to do. And the track coach, when I was in the fifth grade at this Catholic school, his friend was the football coach. And so after the track season in my fifth grade year, I uh, started playing football in the sixth grade. But Football to me at that time it was just kind of something to do in the off season of track as I was preparing. Uh, so <laughs> I, I really didn't see it as something. And it's kind of funny when I was in the sixth grade. I remember uh, a friend of mine his his father said, "You know, you're going to be playing professional football one day." And I was like, "Yeah, whatever." Like I I, I just I never never thought wow. that it would be uh, it would be a career that I'd actually end up playing professional football. And it was. Uh, you know, probably it was about 10 years, 10 years from the first time that I played there in the sixth grade uh, to getting drafted uh, when I was 21. That parent said that to you when you were how old? I was 11. And he said that to you when you were 11? Yeah, but I mean, you know, I think parents probably say, you know, friends, uh, parents, friends or friends, parents say things like that, probably just, eh, wow, you look really good. But yeah, he said that uh, when I was 11. Wow. Ended up being right. <laughs> That's amazing. No, but I mean, clearly you were very talented uh, as a, as an athlete from a very young age. And um, I mean, clearly I, becoming a parent now, parents don't just offer up that type of information. If anything, they're more critical of kids. It's like, Nah, he doesn't have it or she doesn't have it, you know? So for a parent to say that to a child at 11 years old, you must've really been something. Um, so I know you went on, you became the first player to win Ohio's Mr. Football award twice, even though your first love was really track. Um, <laughs> so, um, at what point did you realize 
that, hey, whatever that parent said when I was 11 years old, hey, this is really real. At what point, maybe during high school or middle school, did you realize, hey, I'm actually, I might be pretty good at one of these things? Well, I mean, I knew I was, I knew I was good. Um, you know, even when I first started running track, like there, they had, uh, I would run an AAU track, so they would have national rankings. So you could see the national rankings and I was right up there in the national rankings. So track is much more objective. I mean, you've got Mm -hmm. times to be able to compare. And then when I got into high school, you know, I had some of the fastest times in the country. So it was like, yeah, I mean, I I knew that I was good at track, but it was, it was my sophomore year uh, in football that I realized that, you know, this is, I was, I was pretty good at football because I played varsity that year. Uh, and you know, the, the first, the first game that I played in, um, I didn't really play much in the first half and they put me in the second half and ended up tying the game and then winning the game in overtime. It was like, you know, some corny movie. Um, and, uh, at, at that point I started to get the letters, uh, from, uh, different schools about football. I'd already started receiving letters about track in my sophomore year. Uh, mm-hmm. But I started to receive the letters about football. I was like, yeah, that, that's when it really started to hit home. But even when I got to Ohio State, like I remember the, the, the freshmen would show up a couple of days early and we'd practice without the upperclassmen. And when the upperclassmen got there and I saw practice for the first time at Ohio State, I was like, I, I literally thought like, I'm going to be the biggest flop in college football. <laughs> you had imposter syndrome? There's, like, there's no way that I can be that violent and and, and withstand that level of violence. And it, it, I mean, it passed quickly, but it was, it was, it was striking to me. And then when, uh, when I started to play, and, and it's kind of funny, the, the first college game ended up looking like the first high school game. Uh, it was against Texas Tech. Uh, and in the first half, really didn't play. And in the second half, uh, came in the game, made some big plays, scored a touchdown, threw up on national TV. Brent Musburger was the, uh, Brent Musburger was calling the game. It was, uh, it was pretty Fantastic. cool. We ended up winning the game and I went on to become, you know, freshman of the year and all that kind of stuff. It was just, it, it, it was another storybooks kind of uh, situation, but it was really when I started to perform like that at Ohio state, that the reality, mm-hmm. um, possibility of professional football really sank into me. Well, what I didn't know about your journey is that you actually flopped back and forth a little bit between football and track, right? Because you played two years of football at Ohio State and in between you actually took a a track scholarship and during your sophomore year, is that right? Yeah, it is. And so what, what ended up happening when I was in my sophomore year uh, at Ohio State, or just about to enter my sophomore year, they brought in a new coach uh, as the offensive coordinator. And this guy just—he just—it just hated me, absolutely hated me. It, he just thought they were too soft on me, and that uh, you know, he, I remember him coming in like during the spring practices, and he's like, "That guy takes class too seriously." Like, you know, why are you no saying way. something? Yeah. And and it's funny. There's a there's a coach. I I, I don't want to bring up his name, but there was a coach that was, uh, he was a, 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 a head coach in college and he said that he was on his staff and he was the same way with him. But, uh, anyway, uh, this, this coach over the summer 
I had to take a chemistry class. And when camp started, the class was still going. And it was chemistry with the lab. And uh, sometimes with the lab, I would have to miss practice. One of the, They had three-a-day practices back then. So it was really... Wow. Great. But I would miss one of the practices. And the guy came, came up to me um, in the locker room and he's like... You know, at least one of these days next week, I need you here at practice instead of class. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you can't. I, and yeah. I was so stunned that something like that was even said to me. And like, and I ended up leaving the team. And, you know, at, at, at the time, I was just so angry and hurt. Like it was and I was I really should have just gone to the coach and said, look, the guy told me to miss a class. This is this is BS, but you know, when you're, when you're that age and you're really angry and, you know, and, and confused, you don't really know what to do. Um, you know, I just, I left the team and it was a big national story. And, um, you know, there was all this controversy around it and I didn't want to come back to the team and be a distraction at that point. Uh, so I thought of transferring. And so I, I went to uh, USC, which was my second choice uh, coming out of high school, I went to USC again, but I also went to Stanford. Uh, and I was thinking about transferring. And you know what the, the rule is, has just changed now here in the last couple of weeks, a uh, couple of months, that you can transfer without any penalty. But back then, I was thinking about transferring in the fall of my sophomore year. But even if I transferred then, I wouldn't have enrolled in time to be eligible the next year. Mm because summer classes don't count uh, for eligibility purposes. So even if I took winter and summer at, the, at, at Stanford or USC, I wouldn't have been able to transfer. Uh, mm-hmm. So I ended up sitting out and running track that year. But, um, you know, we can uh, get, to this, get to this part of the story later. But um, at Stanford at the time, uh, Denny Green was the coach. So he was the head coach, and Ty Willingham, his running back coach, uh, you know, ended up going to the league with him. And of course, uh, ended up coaching at Stanford and uh, at Washington himself. But that's how I met Denny. So I met Denny when I when I was thinking about transferring from Ohio State. But in that in that offseason, I did. I transferred to a track scholarship, uh, trained with the track team that entire uh, that entire fall and then ended up running uh, that entire spring at Ohio State. And that was uh, the spring of 92, uh, and, uh, you know, 400 meters was my race. And I actually ended up qualifying for the Olympic trials in the 400, uh, that spring. Um, but, and, and now, well, now I look back at it and I'm like, I should have gone to the trials, just gone. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, I knew I would qualified. I know the difference. Unlike DK Metcalf, I know the difference between (laughs) Uh, and even as you know, a, a world class 400 meter runner, I wasn't fast enough to make the U.S. team. So I ended up uh, making the decision to go back and play football at Ohio State. And so I, I, I just concentrated on football and getting back uh, to go play football that that uh, that season, and didn't end up going to the trials. But we ended, I ended up running in '93 as well. So oh, after cool. I uh, turned pro. In football, I still ran track that spring. So after I got drafted in 93, we actually uh, won the NCAA 4x400. Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. So many parts I want to ask about. Um, The fact that you 
you qualified for the Olympic trials and then you didn't go. Um, but that, that's just amazing. That it was a cool, it was a cool just... letter. I don't know where the letter is anymore, but you know, you got the invitation because I qualified. The time was fast enough to qualify automatically. I didn't have to wait for uh, seatings. Wow. That's, that's really amazing. I also find it um, admirable and amazing that you were able to put academics and class and your studies first. Um, even when you get the pressure from a coach, like, Hey, you need to be at practice because even I, I came from an upbringing where it's like academics is first over everything else. But even then had a coach come to me and said, Hey, I need you to be at practice because I'm such a coach and people pleaser. And you want to, you're doing everything <laughs> you can right as a student athlete. Yeah. Cause it's like, you want to prove yourself. So I don't know if I would have had the gumption to say no to a coach. So where did that come from? where you knew that you had to put your, your academics before sport? Well, you know, growing up, uh, as I said, my mother was a registered nurse. And, you know, I had always been fascinated with science in particular, especially, uh, you know, being around the hospitals and seeing what she did. And, you know, I, I just, I always knew and was in, especially encouraged by her uh, to excel uh, in school. And quite frankly, you know, as, a, as I said, I didn't really think about turning pro and, or thinking about the possibility, the real possibility mm -hmm. of turning professional in football until I got to college. Um, even then, I knew like, for the nature of the sport. You know, I had broken my arm in the eighth grade, broken my uh, arm in the ninth grade and was, you know, I, I, had, I was almost at a point where I wasn't going to play anymore. But I always knew that the nature of the sport was that no matter how good you are at football, it can end at any day. So what are you mm -hmm. going to do then? And that's, you know, it was just, it was something. And again, I, you know, I thank my mother and I thank my coaches for always impressing that on me as well, because it was always, yeah, I mean, football is great and you're really good at it and you may be pro one day, but your pro career can end literally on any snap period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no question about that. So you get, you say you're at Ohio state for three years, you get selected in the first round in 1993 in the NFL draft. So what's happening behind the scenes with regards to your social life, the personal issues, the, the evolution with your relationship with alcohol, because I know you mentioned that you'd only really drank a couple times in high school. And then what was that like in high in college? Um, so, I mean, there were some, there were some wild nights, some crazy nights and, and certainly affected my grades, uh, when I started drinking, but, um, you know, again, when you're younger, you can handle things like that. And at, at that point there, the incidents where it really got out of control were just there, they were so far apart that it really didn't become an alarm at that point. Uh, so it, it really wasn't that bad. And, you know, when I, I turned pro, uh, Denny was one of those coaches that was very flexible and in the off season, I would go back uh, and take classes at Ohio state. So, uh, I was still working, uh, on my degree at that point. Um, and, you know, because, you know, it's funny when I, when I, um, first was getting ready to go to Ohio state, uh, a doctor, um, 
who was kind of like an academic advisor in a sense, right? not my true academic advisor, but advised me going into uh, college, said, you should major in a humanity um, and not a science because the medical schools are looking for more well-rounded students. And so I majored in history and ended up uh, uh, really on a, on a chemistry minor path. So I had to take all the biology, chemistry, and physics but also had to take all of the history classes. So, oh my gosh. so um, while I was uh, uh, still at uh, Ohio State, I finished up all of my pre-med requirements. So um, I was still uh, on the right path, and uh, and and I'm still I'm looking I'm looking for uh, I'm on the uh, 22 year or 32 year plan. So I still have one class of German and one class of history to take. They changed the requirements when I left. Uh, they, <laughs> Keep they adding more quarter, classes, don't the, they? <laughs> they went from the quarter system to, to the semester system. And uh, in uh, 20, I think it was 2011 or 2012, I took one of each. Uh, so I still have to take the other ones. And, you know, we can talk about, you know, the entrepreneur uh, path and kind of how that's distracted from it but uh hopefully i'm at a place now where i can actually finish up those last two classes that's great so you have two classes left yeah okay Literally are you gonna walk classes. down the aisle no <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna but, say you have to let us know so that way we can catch this or we no, can at but least I'll, like- I'll show the I'll, I'll show the degree to the kids though yes that would be great um yeah, I think, you know, when you're talking about the the socialization aspect and like your the relationship with alcohol, I think the tough thing is about that, especially when you're in, whether it's high school or college or in your 20s while you're in the pros, is that that's just a part of the culture, right? Going out and partying. So it's easy because I've had actually a couple of friends. Um, one of them has was a high school friend and she was an athlete, also a tennis player. And she has since, since passed. Um, and another one who is another high profile athlete, which I, I won't name, but you, he used to drink so excessively to the point where he would black out and, but it was so encouraged because it was kind of like a, yeah. a badge of honor. You know yeah. what I mean? Right. <laughs> so you understand it's like, so if you're playing beer pong, you're doing it till 5.00 AM, you come back from a game, you go all night, you go to practice. That's just like the thing that you do. So I feel like even if there are red flags emerging to the surface, no one really cares or no one is really mature enough to acknowledge it because it's just, ingrained in the culture you're ab- you're absolutely right and it, and it looks fairly normal uh, the drinking pattern looks fairly normal you know the way that an alcoholic drinks in their 30s and 40s is you know kind of like a uh you know a college student and just out having a good time but then you know it becomes darker you know drinking on your own and things like that but um in in college uh you just look like one of the boys you know what i mean mm-hmm. you're absolutely right like I remember the nights being out with the with the team uh, when uh, when I was in in college and then in the pros and in the pros you know you're you're out you're drinking you're socializing you're womanizing you know you're doing all those kind of things and you know you're just one of the guys so that that uh, pattern of behavior doesn't look so unusual. Mm-hmm. So when you're in the NFL, I think a lot of people are are just kind of wondering and, and a lot of 
the general public or people that aren't aware might be in awe that anybody or any athlete is able to juggle all those things. But just kind of like how you mentioned that even when you're young, that you're able to juggle all this stuff and come to practice with a fresh face and everything. But we're also talking about some of the most gifted athletes in the world and (laughs) gifted athletes can go out and party and take whatever substance until 5 a.m. on one hour of sleep and show up and look perfectly fine and even have one of the best performances. But I know that you were very methodical with your process when you were in the NFL. So what did that look like? Well, so I would... I would not, I would not, I I would choose certain days uh, to drink. That's the way it would look for me. So um, sometimes on a Thursday night, I might go out, you know, with a game on a Sunday. uh, And then on Sunday and Monday night, I would go out. uh, But those, those were the only three days. And so I, I, I chose to drink on nights where I didn't have to do anything heavy the next day. And, you know, towards the end of the week, just preparing for the game. Uh, you know, I would I would never go out on a Friday night uh, and just uh, just really try and mind the schedule that way. And, you know, I was fortunate. I was fortunate that uh, I didn't hurt myself or anybody else during those times because, you know, pre Uber days, you know, everybody was out and, and drinking and carrying on. And a lot of times we would get hotels, but sometimes we wouldn't, you know, just would, uh, would drive in that condition, which uh, really is just unthinkable really now. Mm-hmm. So how did things change once football was no longer in your life? You spent eight years in the NFL and then what, what did that look like once you retired? Yeah. And that, that I think that was a, a really a turning point for me because, you know, you lose that structure. Uh, and I think part of it is losing identity as well. Uh, but you lose that structure more importantly, you know, when, when you don't have to do anything, that's oftentimes what you end up doing. You know, you don't do anything. Uh, And businesses, unless you're involved in the day to day of a business and, you know, never got to that point at at that at that time, uh, you know, the uh, using and and drinking like that, that just becomes uh, part of the routine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And once that routine and and that habit gets formed, then it, it just becomes really difficult to break that cycle. And that's, that's exactly what ended up happening to me. Now, um, enough for a number of years, I didn't, I didn't work. I did, so I didn't work until, uh, 2005, uh, which was, uh, a little more than four years after, uh, retiring, uh, from football. So I was at ES, I started at ESPN in, uh, in 2005 and it was the same kind of, uh, pattern where you know you just try and control the drinking. Don't don't drink uh, when you're working, and then uh, try and uh, manage it when you're away. But it was just it was just it just got it got to the point, especially after the birth of my daughter, uh, and then before the birth of my son. It just it just got to a point where it's like I, I just I just can't do this anymore. Hmm. I think the thing that is intriguing about your journey is that I think there might be the misconception that addiction with any substance is, is every day, all day, every day. And it's this uncontrollable, there's this uncontrollable nature about it. But with your, your situation, it was very systematic and yet very controlled. And whenever you let go, you would get 
you know, there was that element of not being in control, but how you approached it, you're like, okay, these days I'm focused. And then the other days I'm going to let loose. Yeah. And that's a, you know, and that's a, that's a mistake that I think a lot of people make uh, in evaluating uh, their, their addiction or their use patterns is that, yeah, well, I'm not drinking every day, so I, I can't be an alcoholic. And you, know, you really have to think about, you just, you really need to be ruthlessly honest with yourself uh, mm-hmm. and look at the way that it is that you drink when you do drink. And, you know, do you, do you feel like you can control it when you're doing it? And, and uh, the problems that arise when you do it uh, and, and then you have these binges, like that's a, that's problem drinking. And, you know, you look at the list for uh, addiction uh, and, and what that pattern looks like. And, and you start checking all the boxes. And, and if you're honest with yourself and you see that, yes, I, those, those things apply to me, then again, it's not only do you fit the pattern of an alcoholic or uh, an addict, it's are you able to do the things that you really want to do with your life every day? Not just when you want to do them, but mm-hmm. can you? those things every day and being a parent isn't a sometimes thing it's an everyday thing and not everybody's a parent not everybody faces that decision but thankfully for me that was part of the equation because it it made it simpler to do the uh, analysis and say if I want to be this parent that I can't have this in my life yeah yeah, I think being a parent certainly changes everything. I, you always hear that cliche. Um, once you have kids, you'll you'll be forever changed, and you have a completely different perspective on life. And you hear it, and you're like, okay, I get it. It's the same thing. I've heard this over and over again. And then when you become a parent, once I became a parent, I was like, oh, this is what it. <laughs> this is what it's really like, and it's it's transformative. So the two points I think that are that I'm so fascinated with, I think that were pivotal moments in your journey was that turning point. Also the breaking point for you when you're like, this isn't working and I really have to do something. And also the other point is when you became public about your story. So with the first part, when was the breaking point? Would you say? Uh, It was right before the birth of my son. Uh, And again, I, I think I, I never drank around my daughter, but uh, before the birth of my son, you know, I, I had a binge and was was thinking like, I, I, I just can't, I can't do this. I can't, I'm, I'm literally becoming my father. And that, that really was the point that really hit home to me. If I'm going to be uh, the father of my son, the way that I need to be, then I can't have alcohol. Mm-hmm. You had been sober for a number of years before you relapsed. And when you look back at that moment, are you able to identify certain triggers or something that might have allowed you to set it off? Or was it just happenstance? It just kind of happened. Well, I think periods of sobriety kind of convince uh, an addict uh, or an alcoholic that uh, that they have control and that this time it's going to be okay. And I think that's really what kind of happens. Like, eh, well, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better now, so I can go back and give this another try. And that, uh, you know, that's a that's a, a pattern that a lot of uh, addicts and alcoholics see. It doesn't matter how much sobriety you have. 
Uh, it can, you know, it all ends uh, with with one with one drink or one use, and and that uh, that that's just the way that your mind works, and that you want to go back to it, and so you're looking for any reason uh, to excuse uh, your past and say, yeah, well, this time it's going to be different. Mm-hmm. So, what did that help look like for you? How were you able to pull yourself out of that? I think this is really important information because I think, uh, you know, I've said it again and again, and I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I just think that athletes are really good in terms of being coachable and they're good for asking for help from their coaches and from their peers. But when it comes to personal issues, we can oftentimes be stubborn. So what did that help look like for you? Well, it's, it's finding somebody that's been through it. It's finding Mm -hmm. other people that uh, have the same issues. Um, and that's, you know, there are, there are a number of different organizations out there that, uh, that have resources like that. There are uh, hospitals and other facilities that are set up for it. And I think that's important for anybody seeking help. Understand that the best person or the best people to help you deal with addiction are addicts, former mm-hmm. addicts. Uh, you know, they're the, they're the ones that, uh, that uh, have been through the same things that have, uh, talk themselves into uh, the same patterns of thinking and behavior. Uh, and so those are the people that you seek out. And um, again, the resources are available. Uh, it, it's just admitting that you have a problem is, is the first step. Uh, but then going and seeking the people that know the path is the next. Mm-hmm. Did you do individual counseling and or group counseling? I did. I did do. I did. I did do both. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Part of our training, um, last summer, especially with my group counseling course, um, we have to kind of dip our toes in a lot of different experiences. And I chose an AA meeting to attend as just kind of like an observer. And, um, it was really empowering. I mean, you had so many, I think what, what was interesting, even more interesting about it was during the pandemic, um, that allowed zoom to to become an integral part of the mental health space, which is great. So just this one AA meeting, um, you had about 60 people. I mean, people were calling in from South Africa, Europe, <laughs> like Alaska, Louisiana. For some people, it was their 10th year of sobriety. For other people, it was their first day and they had relapsed five days in a row and they were calling in from a hotel and had just lost their job. I mean, just the span of experiences was so powerful. And I know that there's different experiences too. So, um, you know, I think that was, that was really interesting, uh, and, and powerful to, to see. And I think, it's important to talk about that because I think that help comes in so many different shapes and sizes and there's no one way to get help. I think it's all about figuring out what system works for you. Would you say? Yeah, absolutely. But, but I think, you know, to your point, people need to understand that there's help there and there's, even if there wasn't zoom, you can pick up a phone and it's just convincing people that, you don't want to try and do that alone. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think just the psychology of it is that you aren't alone. Uh, you're, you, the, the phrase that I've heard used is don't believe that you're terminally unique, um, that there are other people that have gone through similar uh, problems, 
uh, and have tried to deal with them in the wrong, similar ways. And so when you go and you seek that help, um, you know, you can, you can just pick up the phone. And again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, that cue habit reward cycle. The cue, like you want to pick up a drink, pick up the phone, uh, call somebody, uh, jump into one of these Zoom meetings, you know, because you're right. They're going on all over the world uh, all the time. And so people can jump in at any time and, and just understand that there's somebody there and there's somebody that cares about what you're going through and not feeling that emptiness, that loneliness that really kind of pushes people uh, into that area of darkness. Uh, you can, you can get into one of those, one of those meetings at any time. Along your journey, you talk about that, that, void or that emptiness, that darkness, have you been able to figure out or identify the moments where that might be a trigger for you? And how do you deal with that? Um, well, it's, I think a lot of it, a lot of it uh, has to do with memories, especially mm-hmm. uh, from being uh, a child and looking back at those times. Now, unfortunately, I've lost my mother and uh, my brother. Um, and, you know, kind of dealing, dealing with that uh, or dealing with those losses, dealing with any loss, uh, you know, there's a, there's a grieving process uh, that you really just have to acknowledge and you acknowledge when those, when those triggers come, you know, what is it that you try and do? I think you try and look at the positive aspects. Yes, I had this trauma going on, this chaos as a child, but I had so many people that, that cared so much about me. They weren't even family that just wanted to help. That's amazing. Like there, you know, and and there are people like that in every community, people that want to help other people. And and I think it's, it's important for, for any individual struggling to understand there are resources. So there are things that you can do to go get that help. So when those triggers come in that, in that way, you look for a different outlet, you look for a different way to deal with it. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me, really thinking about all of the positive, uh, you know, in dealing with the loss of, of a loved one uh, is the same way. Rather than thinking about the end and the grief, uh, especially right when you lose somebody, think about all the great times that you have and how it, it, it's the path that we all go on. Uh, it's, it's, it's the one thing about the, about the human condition that we all share. We're all going to die. We're all going to die at some point. It's a, it's a, it's a short life and it's a... And, it's 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 also a beautiful life if you appreciate uh, the people and the things that you have in your life. So when you think about those uh, loved ones that you lost, you think about all those great times that you shared. Because you had a lot more great times together uh, that that really uh, in balance are more of the experience that you had with them than it is uh, the, the loss that you felt at the end. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you've been able to come to grips with how to manage all of that stuff, how to allow yourself to heal and to grieve. And then there's this shift in perspective about like, hey, rather than focusing on just that negative stuff, I'm going to shift my perspective and remember the good stuff as well. But there's also that process of of having to heal and giving yourself time to grieve as well. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's, a, that's really important you know, that you, you brought that up, that you have to, you have to acknowledge your own humanity. Uh, you have to understand that there is a process 
and that, that, you know, that there are those steps that you go through and it's okay to be sad sometimes. You know I mean? That's, that's who we are. Uh, and if, 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 if you've loved, you felt pain in that relationship many times, right? So, uh, understanding that that's part of it, but then, uh, trying to focus on more of the positive aspects, uh, that's what, uh, that's what really, uh, brings you back to, uh, the best aspects of that, uh, of that relationship. Mm-hmm. So here you are, you are on the process of, of healing and dealing with these issues and getting help. And how long was it before, from the moment you started to really work on yourself and get help to the moment you came out pub- publicly about your story in, in 2013? Uh, it must've been about a year and a half or so. Okay. Uh, and, you know, it was seeing Chris Carter talk about it at the uh, Hall of Fame uh, induction uh, in 2013 that triggered it for me because it was like, you know, why, why keep this to myself when, you know, notoriety in and of itself isn't really good for anything <laughs> you know, other than, uh, you know, uh, making you feel good, I, I, I guess, uh, in, in some way, or, uh, you know, maybe uh, bigger paychecks. But, um, <laughs> if, if, if you can do something with notoriety, if you can actually help somebody or change something, then you're, you're really uh, moving into a, a different level. And for me, it was the ability to help so many other people out there. And, you know, having people come up to me at a gas station or something like that and say, hey, I heard your story and it really helped me. Like, that's, that's great. And, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be an addict or an alcoholic. Uh, you know, I think the good thing that we've seen here, not just in the pandemic, but I think over the last couple of years in general, is that people are just more honest or at least at, at least more open uh, to sharing those types of, of stories and issues, yeah. whether it's gender related, sexuality, uh, uh, addiction, uh, mental health. Uh, we're talking more about these things. And that's the, the good part of the cesspool that, or, or what can be the cesspool <laughs> social media. Yeah, uh, it can be accessible. <laughs> There's no question about, it, but there are the the um, positive aspects of it. And you're right. I think technology and social media has allowed people a platform to be much more transparent and have control over their story and their narrative. And um, and I think that's definitely the the positive aspects of that. So when you come out in 2013, what do you what was that? experience like coming out for the first time and sharing that publicly? Um, it, it, it definitely was a relief. Like it mm-hmm. was um, the, the easing of a, of a, of a burden on uh, being able to do that and just kind of be open with people. Um, and there's, there's just this relief. Like you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to carry the world. You feel like, you feel like there's this big dark secret, and it, it, it makes you less open in general. I think, and so opening up that way really just just kind of uh, was the release of a of, of a burden. Um, it's a it's it's an empowering feeling, uh, but but more than anything else, it's uh, understanding or uh, revealing that vulnerability. Uh, it can be very cleansing. 
Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that as well. I think it's, there's a process and I'm curious, this was my own personal experience, at least with it, um, with my mental health, uh, issues and my eating disorder related to that was very much tied to sport, but there's this process of shame and embarrassment and wanting to hide it for a number of years. But then as I got help and I was able to work through my story and, and heal and understand myself a little bit more, then you get to this point where it's like, my gosh, as you said, I had this big secret and you want to live this life of authenticity. And I think a part of that is like, this is my story. And if I don't take control of it and share it, it's just going to control me. So yeah. you just kind of want to, doesn't it feel that way? I'm curious if, if that's what you felt as well. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it's liberating. Yeah. Um, you know, you, like you, you feel that you're uh, imprisoned uh, by your own mind, by, by your own seat. And that can, it could be a real drag on you. It's, um, you know, it just, it, it kind of can take over all aspects of your life. And I think that in general, you just become a happier person because you're not feeling the need to hide those things. Mm -hmm. And it helps you, I think, come to terms with who you are in a very uh, general sense as well. And I think the more we see who we are, the more we're aware of all of those different aspects of our being, the quicker we are really to see warning signs. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and the more truthful we are about that, uh, the easier it is to avoid moving into those dark places because of those different issues. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm catching you at a really good time because we're just several days away from the ninth anniversary of your sobriety. Uh, if my math is right, math has never been really my forte, but I think that's right, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm um, okay. Um, so what does it feel like as you approach um, your, your ninth anniversary? Uh, you know, I, honestly, like, I don't even think about it like that anymore. I think about it yeah. as just... I'm on the same day. I'm on the same day as everybody else that is either sober or trying to get sober. Like they're all, mm -hmm. we're all in the same boat. So I don't even think about it in those terms. Do you not give yourself credit and take a time to celebrate yourself a little bit? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do some of that, but you know, the, the further you get, like the, the less you really are concerned about that. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really about uh, just, trying to live each day, um, you know, moment to moment and really appreciating every day and not falling into, yeah, well, because I think what happens to a lot of people is it's, and that's, that's why I'm, I'm hesitant sometimes like, well, I've got this much and I've got that much time. Like we're all on the same 24. Yeah. We're all on the same 24 and people, people that hear long periods of sobriety, sometimes they get, they get intimidated and say, I, there's no way I can make it to, you know, nine or 20 or 30. Like you don't have to do that. You said you have to stay sober today. Yeah. It's just little steps. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. why, I mean, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a phrase often used one day at a time. I mean, that's what yeah. it is. You know, if, if it has to be a minute at a time, do it that way. Like mm -hmm. if, if, if that's, that's what you get told by people that have long periods of sobriety. You don't have to do it nine years at a time, 10 years at a time. You have to do it one day at a time. Everybody does the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, as, as we're kind of wrapping up this conversation, um, you know, I don't think our conversation necessarily has to center around the topic of addiction. I think this is applicable to anything, but people that are going through their own issues, especially if we're talking to athletes and we're talking to the athlete population, or if we're even talking to sports parents or coaches, what kind of advice would you have for them if you, if they were to hear your story and they were experiencing similar things? What kind of advice uh, would you have for them? Just be brutally honest. Be brutally honest. And, and understand that what it is that you're trying to be can be impacted by all of those other aspects of your mental health. And you can't be the be- best version of yourself and have all of that baggage un- without dealing with it. Um, you know, if you're, you're, and we see it so many times in, in sports that, you know, a lot of people are talented, uh, but a lot of people don't make it because there's some aspect of their mental makeup that doesn't allow them to achieve what they need to achieve, especially when you're talking about sports, you know, like, uh, like golf that, that are so yeah. mental. Um, there, there, there are so many, uh, there are so many players that don't achieve the highest level. Uh, but in any sport, uh, because if you don't have the right mindset, if you can't deal with occasional failures, if you can't deal with uh, needing uh, to be able to push yourself harder, then you can't be the, the best that you want to be at something. And if we all want to be the best version of ourselves, whatever it is that we do in life, uh, then we have to we have to evaluate uh, if we want to be the best of, of version of ourselves we need to evaluate what steps we need to take to achieve that and mm-hmm. and always always and i always tell this to my kids it always starts with attitude it always starts with mindset because if you're if you if you haven't set a a, a, a path uh, or a, i should say an end goal uh for what it is that you want to be then you don't know where you're going and you're lost mm-hmm. once you kind of set that goal for where you want to be um, athletically, uh, physically, spiritually, mentally, all of that, then you can you can do the individual steps that help you achieve that. Mm-hmm. I love what you said about the goal. I also love what you said about just being totally brutally honest with ourselves. I think that's one of the hardest things to do as an adult. And I think that's applicable, you know, not to just whether it's mental health, relationships, the relationship we have with ourselves, the relationship we have with with others, um, facing the truth, I feel like as you get older, becomes a lot harder to do because oftentimes the the truth hurts. But I also think that the truth allows us to evolve and grow and to hopefully achieve a better better life. But Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show and allowing me to investigate and explore and pepper you with all sorts of crazy personal <laughs> questions. But I, I think your story is just so inspiring. And um, I've known about it. I have yet to, uh, before this interview, I yet to talk to you about it personally. And um, it, it really is. It's such an inspiring story. So I appreciate you coming on and just being so vulnerable and sharing it with us. You got it. Great to connect with you again, Prim. Great to connect with you. <laughs> the next chapter with Prim Seripapat is a production of iHeartRadio. Radio.